podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. There was always that bigger expansive view, but when I started to sit down with broadcasters in India or potential investors, they seriously did look at me like I had two heads or I was nuts. This was the reaction that Sean Martin received when he was pitching Fair Break Global, cricket league for women. It was in India, who by then was the financial capital of cricket. Story of Fair Break began immediately after the 2013 Women's World Cup in India. Australia won that tournament. A member of the winning side was Lisa Staleka, a legend of the sport. It was her last international match. Staleka then founded the Women's International Cricket League with her manager, Sean Martin. In many ways, the first manager any female cricketer had ever had. Money was not an important part of the contract because Lisa herself only made $15,000 a year from cricket. She had to work another full-time job and she would take service leave or sick leave to play for New South Wales and Australia. Her own career pushed the Laker to set up the WICL. In April 2014, they pitched a 16 women's T20 league in Singapore. They wanted to provide more opportunities and money to female cricketers, and they hoped the top players would make 30000 to 40000 Australian dollars in the first year. Neither Cricket Australia nor the ECB supported the plan. They had their reason. Both boards had revamped their contracts of recent times, and they were not willing to let go of their best players for a franchise-based league. Meanwhile, the WICL expanded their vision. In 2015, they launched a fair break program with the motto of getting women from associate nations together. They invited cricketers from Papua New Guinea, Caledonia, Fiji, Vanuatu and Singapore together for a camp. The next few years were spent with the boards and the ICC kind of volleyballing the WICL towards each other. Meanwhile, Cricket Australia launched the Women's Big Bash League. The ECB had the Kia Super League and even the BCCI had the Women's T20 Challenge. Of course, none of those leagues actually gave the women as much respect as what the men had. But the women were certainly making a lot more money than when the WICL was launched. In fact, that league didn't really seem realistic anymore. There was no reason for cricketers to opt into private leagues at that stage when their own boards had competitions and also central contracts. But on the 30th of May 2018, they finally managed to organise a major cricket match with women from all around the world. And not a league, but just a one-off game in Buckinghamshire. And they live-streamed the match. There was no compromise on the vision. There were big names like Charlotte Edwards, Susie Bates, Leah Tahuhu, Alex Blackwell, but there was also Selena Solman of Vanuatu, Dashali Jazrani of Oman, Diane Bimanyamana of Rwanda, and Mariko Hill of Hong Kong. And Fairbreak continued to organise small-scale matches and tours as well. In 2019, 14 cricketers from 10 countries toured the UK for four other matches. In 2020, a team representing eight countries played a match at the Bradman Oval in Bowral. Both tours made news for non-cricketing reasons. The England touring party had a German gynaecologist called Stephanie Fronmeyer. She flew back to Munich during the tour, delivered four babies, and then returned back to London. On the second tour, Shamila Moswu of Botswana was initially denied an Australian visa. The authorities later reversed that decision. But the overall goal of WICL, or fair break as it would become, was still to have one major league. That took until 2022. And that was really because Sean Martin stayed around that long. He had a dream and he stuck to it. And he was very different to many of the other people around cricket who were bringing in leagues. For instance, a lot of them make a lot of money from advertising, gambling, and betting agencies. Sean Martin didn't want to be involved with that at all. 
Part of the reason was, in Fairbreak's eyes, that gambling industry was very much intrinsically linked with domestic violence and family dislocation. It shows you how differently they were thinking about cricket than anyone ever had before. But the biggest change from the original vision, so what Fairbreak would eventually be, is that essentially it became more of an associate league. It was affiliated with Hong Kong cricket, and having a cricket board on their side meant that Fairbreak could actually just exist. It wasn't a rebel league anymore. It was just another league that was out there. So that meant that 90 cricketers from 35 nations signed up for the league. And there was a lot of big name players there, like Heather Knight, Susie Bates, Deandra Dotton, Sana Murr, Sophie Eccleston, Nicole Carey, Mignon Dupreeze, Suna Luce, Hayley Matthews, and Sophie Devine. But there are also other cricketers who weren't as famous for playing for major nations, but has made themselves as kind of superstars on social media, like Roberta Morietti Avery, who was the Brazilian captain. The USA captain, Sindhu Sriharsha, was also named to lead the Warriors, one of the teams in the league. You could also find Andrew Gurung of Bhutan, who had only ever played against men back home. There was also Mariam Omar, the Kuwaiti captain and a civil engineer. Anuradha Dada Balapur of Germany is, as far as we could tell, the first woman to take four wickets in four balls in international cricket, while also being a postdoctoral research scientist at the Max Planck Institute. Henrietta Ishimwe of Rwanda bowled Nicola Carey with her first ball of the tournament and ran out Natea Buchatham later in the day. Sean Martin would compare it to the Olympics, and why not? There were only eight countries at the Women's World Cup held in New Zealand earlier that year. The T20 World Cup that starts in South Africa in a couple of days will have only 10. You compare that to what his tournament was finally called, the Fairbreak Invitational T20, which had 35, Brazil, Germany, Nepal, Bhutan, Rwanda, Oman, the Philippines, Vanuatu, Sweden, Papua New Guinea, Tanzania, Japan, Austria, Argentina, Botswana. You get the point. In fact, weirdly enough, other than the Tornadoes coach, Andrew Jane, there was no Indian in the league. And while that was a little bit odd, it probably didn't matter that much to Sean Martin, who had finally fulfilled a dream that took him about nine years. A privately run league for women. The best cricketers in the world taking the field alongside a bunch of players who would never make it to a 10 or even a 20-team World Cup. If you compare that to the ICC's world, where the women do not earn as much as the men and the associates not as much as full members, they don't even get to play against most full members. In Sean Martin's world, the women earn money and there is no geographical barrier. The thinking is that over time, the cricketers from the lower-ranked countries will learn, compete, and return to their countries to tell everyone what cricket at the highest level is like. And that more importantly, women around the world will be able to make money from playing cricket to focus on that and nothing else. And one thing that Fairbreak and Sean Martin managed to do was for the first time ever, actually create an international tournament for cricket. This season is about rich people who decided that they would make cricket better, more about them, or sometimes both. Maybe they wanted to profit from it or just insert themselves into an 11 that they had no right to be in. But they had the money and cricket was purchased by them for their own wants and needs. Welcome to the people who bought cricket. This episode is about Sean Martin, who runs a league that breaks tradition and looks beyond gender and geography at the same time. The truth is that while Sean Martin is the latest person to put his own money into women's cricket, it has actually happened quite a bit before. In 1777, Jack Sackville, the third Duke of Dorset, wrote in a letter, What is human life but a game of cricket? And if so, why should not the ladies play it as well as we? There's no doubt that the Duke endorsed cricket, 
but to be fair, his intentions were probably not solely driven by the desire to promote women's cricket. He was a well-known womanizer, and he liked his women to be sporty. Women would play cricket over the next century, but mostly from the noble elite class. Sometimes they would play with men where the games had to play left-handed, and sometimes they would bat with a broom. But there were all-women matches as well. In 1811, Hampshire and Surrey played a 22-to-side match for 500 guineas. That sort of prize was certainly an exception and not a rule. When women played, it was mostly on private grounds. Because of that, not so much in front of large crowds. And professional women's cricket was largely unthinkable. Then, roughly a century after the Duke, came a French-American entrepreneur called Edward Michel. In 1889, he founded the English Cricket and Athletic Association Limited Syndicate. He then began to advertise in newspapers for a team called the Original English Lady Cricketers, a group of women who would play exhibition matches in the summer of 1890. The ad had some interesting terms in it. It said, Young lady players wanted, must be of good address and appearance, respectable, strong, active, not under 5 foot 6 in height, or over 22 years of age. You will notice that no reference to actually how good you are of cricket was involved there, just how you looked and how young you were. He also promised that the cricketers would be elegantly and appropriately attired, and that the entire venue will be, in all respects, select and refined. The candidates had to provide written consent from parents or a guardian and character references as well. And there were 200 applicants. The syndicate shortlisted 30 of them and split them into two teams, called the Reds and the Blues. Some players did actually switch between teams. I'm not really sure why that was the case. It might have something to do with form or availability. They recruited a matron to chaperone the cricketers and insisted that the players use pseudonyms. That was because professional female athletes were not respected in society at that time. The cricketers were paid £10 a week during training and between £20 and £35 during matches, and all expenses were covered. Surrey professionals like George Lohman, George Hearn and Morris Reid were recruited to come in and coach them. The entire budget was about £2,000, which was a colossal sum in that period. Michelle charged the spectators an entry fee as the teams played several matches across England. It was kind of like proper franchise cricket, but with two teams. Women's cricket was actually taking off in England in the 1880s, and it made sense for local teams to play against professionals. New clubs were opening up, but many of the clubs refused to play against the Reds and the Blues. There was a reason for this. An article in the graphic seems to sum this up best. The columns of the sporting papers at this time of the year are full of the doings of lady cricketers. We do not mean these lady cricketers, that's in quotations by the way, who are touring around the country making money out of their skill. We have little sympathy for them. But at numberless country houses in the late summer, the ladies cricket match is quite an institution. And if that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, let me kind of explain it this way. Back then, professional men were considered second-class citizens of cricket. So how do you think professional women cricketers were seen? Michelle was determined to make this project work. The team travelled all around England. The first match in Liverpool was attended by 15,000 people, and the turnover was almost always above 2,000. Other entrepreneurs copied this idea, and after that summer ended, an ad for the Gardener's original Lady Cricketers appeared. Next February, there was another for the All England Lady Cricketers this time. The more the public loved them, the more financially lucrative the venture seemed. And of course, that meant that the more high-nosed cricket fraternity hated them. Newspapers sometimes referred to the cricketers as Amazons. The most dangerous comment came from W.G. Grace. If the lady cricketers expected to popularise the game among women, they failed dismally. 
The most hurtful comment came from W.G. Grace himself. He said, If the lady cricketers expected to popularise the game among women, they failed dismally. At all events, they had their day and ceased to be. He called these professional women neither ladies nor cricketers. And it took women's cricket many years to recover from this burden. In 1934, even Marjorie Pollard, the most impactful writer of women's cricket of all time, wrote that Michelle did not make a genuine effort to provide cricket as a summer game. In that same year, members of the first England women's test side had to pay for their trip to Australia. That might not have been necessary had Michelle's project lasted. Between the wars and after them, professional cricket became basically non-existent. That meant that the vast majority of women who would play cricket came from the upper middle class. Anyone else just weren't allowed to play. That's when Jack Haywood arrives. He was a friend of England captain Rachel Hayhoe Flint and a benefactor of the Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. In 1969 and 70, and 1970 and 71, he funded two tours of England women to the West Indies. Hayhoe Flint said that people like Jack Haywood don't grow on trees. In fact, he certainly was different, and it was the combination of those two people that allowed for Haywood to propose the idea of a Women's World Cup to then Women's Cricket Association President Sylvia Swinburne. He also donated £40,000. When everyone asked Haywood why he spent this incredible amount of money, his answer was simple. I love women and I love cricket. And what could be better than to have the two rolled together? After Prudential stepped in with more money, the first ever World Cup of cricket was there. The women having a World Cup is probably why we ended up with a men's World Cup as well. But the women's game certainly didn't explode just because we had one tournament. Women's cricket was getting a little bit more organised around the world. India and the West Indies played test cricket in the same year. And women's cricket was becoming popular, however slowly. By 2005, it was big enough that the ICC could take it over. At that point, a little bit more money started flowing into the game. But crucially, the women were always an addition, which wasn't the case before the ICC. When the Reds and Blues eventually failed for Edward Michelle, he just sort of left the game. That brings us back to Sean Martin. I've interviewed him on my podcast, Red Inca. I've done a lot of research on him. I'm still not exactly sure how Fairbreak was completely funded. I'm not even that sure on how Sean Martin had so much money to be able to do some of the things that he has. There are many questions about Fairbreak as it currently stands and how it will sustain itself into the future. And we should be asking those questions of him. Because even though his intentions may look a lot better than what Edward Michelle had once done, or even someone like Alan Stanford has recently... We still need to question where the money is coming from for all of these cricket leagues, Sean Martin's and pretty much all the T20 franchise leagues that pop up around the world. But even if Fairbreak finishes and we only ever had one tournament, it is absolutely incredible to see professional women from all around the world, from so many countries, come together in a league that men's franchise cricket could never even have. We just don't know that much about Sean Martin at the moment. And we will continue to ask questions and try and work out what the future of Fairbreak is. But let's say we just had one or two tournaments. What was achieved here? Well, they decentralized cricket. They broke barriers along gender and geography. They took a stand on advertising and partnerships in a way that no other leagues had. And essentially, Fairbreak is a franchised World Cup. Again, as has often happened in the history of cricket, the money came from men. But this does appear to be a tournament made by women for women. Women have been paid to play cricket before. And we've had world events before, but we've never had anything like Fairbreak. 
Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad-free, you can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced, and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co-produces the show. Sports Social Podcast Network.